0: Good morning, fellowship. Good to see you guys. It's a big week. Something significant will happen on Tuesday. Not sure what, but something will. You know, we are in. Um, we're taking a not really a pause in our series on the Sermon of the Mount. We're we're doing a mini series in our series on the Sermon of the Mount, and what. Lloyd started last week, I'm continuing this week, and he will complete next week, which is a deep dive into the theme of Jesus's sermon, the theme of the kingdom of God. And as Lloyd mentioned last week, which by the way, if you missed last week's message, please go back and watch it. For one thing, you'll have a chance to understand what's on this board behind me. I'm gonna be interacting with it throughout today's message, but I really want you to see how Lloyd developed it last week, it was wonderful. And it'll make sense. All this is kind of playing on each other and is kind of building as we go. But the kingdom of God, as Lloyd said, is the theme, not just of Jesus' sermon, but in many ways is the theme of the whole Bible. It was the message of Jesus. He talked about the kingdom of God all the time. And sometimes he referred to it as the kingdom of heaven, sometimes just the kingdom, but it's the same concept. And so let me just review a bit of what Lloyd did last week. I certainly won't be able to walk through all of it. It's well worth watching. But Lloyd defined the kingdom using these simple terms. And I thought this was such a helpful way to think about it. The kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule, enjoying God's blessings. And if you take that theme, those ideas, those words, and trace it through the Bible, it looks something like this. You can think about the Bible in terms of how God was engaging with the kingdom. So the kingdom gave Genesis 1 and 2, that's where Adam and Eve living in the garden, the kingdom lost Genesis chapter 3 with the fall then the kingdom promised to Abraham and his family, Genesis 12, 1 to 3 is when that comes into play, the king of the kingdom, which is the monarchy of Israel with uh, Saul and, and, and David who is the most significant king and, and is sort of the, the prediction of what will come to be will be a kingdom on the throne of David whose rule will never end and then you move on to the kingdom assured this is when the nation was in exile but Prophet said, don't worry, God's got this. The kingdom is going to come. The true king is going to come. Then there's a 400-year silence in between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And then in the Gospels, it's the kingdom inaugurated through Jesus Christ. And then the moment in time that we are living in now is the now and not yet kingdom. It's a little bit of the overlap between heaven and earth, in a sense. In other words, when Jesus came, he said, The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and what does it look like for that kingdom to be at hand? Well, it looks like the church, it looks like us, and then we're leaning forward to the day still to come where Jesus will return and heaven and earth will once again be united. In uh, Revelation 21, it talks about the city of God, the New Jerusalem, coming down and resting on a new earth, and that's where this whole story is going. Now, Last week was the pattern of the kingdom throughout the Bible, what I just walked you through. This week, I want to talk about the people of the kingdom. In other words, not just the events and and, and how the, the scripture talks about the kingdom of God, but the actual people who are being talked about as the people of the kingdom, the members of the kingdom, so to speak. So help me out with this. I'm going to go through and I want to write under each of these who the people of the kingdom were at that point in time in history. Genesis 1 and 2, who are the people of the kingdom? You just shout it out. Yeah, I heard it. Adam and Eve. All right, this, this is going to be a little bit of a participation. So if you've got an answer that you think might be correct, just shout it out nice and loud. So Adam and Eve, the people of the kingdom in Genesis 1 and 2 and also in Genesis 3. Let's now move to the kingdom promised. Well, you got a really big hint right here. But who would you say if I were going to give a plural of this? Who, who's the, the people of the kingdom in, in Genesis 12? It's Abraham's family. So we'll say it's the family of Abraham. Remember, the nation of Israel just started out as a family. It was Abraham's family. So the family of Abraham. Now we're going to move on to the next section. And this family becomes a nation. So I guess I already gave you the answer for that one. I'll just write it. So it's the nation of Israel. God's chosen nation was a family that grew into a people, a nation. So the nation of Israel, and that's of course during the, the kingship as well as the exile. Then you get to the time of Jesus and Jesus calls a new group of people to be the people of the kingdom. Uh, how might you describe, who would be the people of the kingdom in, in the gospel and in Acts? Yes, that's exactly right, the disciples. I'm gonna call it the followers of Jesus. The followers of Jesus in the Gospels especially. And then finally, I just want to do one more, which is the one that we're going to focus on primarily today, this now and not yet. Who are the people of the kingdom in Romans, through the end of all the New Testament letters, and even on into today? This is a very important question. Who are the people of the kingdom here? The church. That's exactly right. The church. Now, Think about how significant that is, because now we're talking about not just past history, we're also talking about present tense, us. And so what I want to show you today, and this is kind of the whole message basically explained right now, and then we'll dig into it more as we go. There is a clear line that connects throughout the entire Bible, the people of God to one another starting with Adam and Eve, the people of God, then the family of Abraham, then the nation of Israel, and then the followers of Jesus, and now us. I want you to see us in the story. I want you to see that this is our story because I think if you see it this way, it's gonna help you engage in this crazy moment in time that we're living in. And I literally mean this week. We're going to talk about the election. Can you believe it? <laughs> I'll get there toward the end when we get to the application. But but here's an illustration I I, I want to invite you into. How many of you have seen the movie Moana? Raise your hand. All those with kids and grandkids have raised their hand. I love Moana. It's a Disney musical animated. It's wonderful. If you haven't seen it yet, it's it's really well worth the time. Very, very well done. Moana is the story of of a young lady who's the daughter of the the head of the tribe, you know, daughter of the chief of the tribe. And they're living on an island, probably somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. You know, I picture one of the Hawaiian islands or it's something like that. It's a long time ago. And uh, there's all these expectations on Moana that she's got to act a certain way, live a certain way, because her destiny is to lead this tribe whenever her father dies. The problem is Moana wants to be in the ocean. Moana wants to explore. Moana wants to leave. She sees this bright, big, beautiful ocean all around her and she says, why can't I go out there? There's gotta be more to the world than this one little island. And so her identity is sort of conflicted. Am I gonna be the, the, the daughter of the king or am I going to be this great... Adventurer, this great explorer. And of course, she has a grandmother who's really, really kind of a kick, by the way. But the grandmother takes her to this cave that Moana's never seen before. And on the way there, the grandmother says, listen, Moana, you know every story about our people except for one. And then she takes her to the cave and she you know, pulls back the vines or the rocks or whatever. And she says, go in there and find out who you are. And Moana steps in and what does she find in this cave? Ships that had been used for generations by this people and had been hidden away. And then she looks at the ships and uh, she starts seeing the the writing, the drawings on the sails of these ships. And it tells the story that her ancestors, her people were explorers, that they were voyagers, that they would go from island to island and discover a new place and plant a new tribe and all these things. And she has this epiphany and, and she runs out of the cave and says, we... We're journeyers, voyagers, that's what it is. We were voyagers. And that identity as a voyager changes Moana's path. I won't tell you the rest of the story. It's well worth watching now. I'm hoping that for some of you, maybe most of us in the room today, you're gonna have a little bit of that kind of moment. Say, we are the people of the kingdom. We are connected to this story and that means we have a purpose in 2020 in Middle Tennessee or wherever you are watching online. Now, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter two. And having explained the big picture, I now wanna dive into a particular text that I think as well as any other text in scripture explains what it means for us, the church, to be the people of the kingdom in our day, 1 Peter 2. And and we're gonna take this a little bit of a chunk at a time. I'm gonna do verses nine and 10 first, and then we'll pick up verses 11 to 12 in a little while. So uh, you you can follow along with me. You don't have to read out loud or anything today, but I'm gonna read verses nine and 10 of 1 Peter chapter two. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, who's Peter writing to? He's writing through the early members of the church. And by the way, these were Jews and Gentiles who had put their faith in Jesus Christ and are now united under this new banner of King Jesus. The the church, they're scattered all about and Peter's writing to them. He's reminding them who they are. You know, this is Peter's moment to say, you need to know who you are. You're connected to the story. Now there's four descriptors he uses. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, and, and a people for his own possession. Every one of those four is a direct quote from the Old Testament when it's talking about the people of the kingdom, particularly right here in the, the, uh, the nation of Israel timeframe. So you see what Peter's doing. He's essentially saying you are this just as the people of God in the Old Testament were. So I wanna write these four things out underneath this banner of the church and I'll I'll put a reference for where this is coming from. This is coming from 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. I know I only read verse 10 through verse 10, but we're gonna get to the rest of it. And here are the four things that he is saying. I'm gonna talk about each of them one by one in a minute. We are a chosen race. We'll talk about what that means. We are a royal priesthood. Thirdly, we are a holy nation. I mean, I hope you're realizing like these words are not words that we usually use to describe ourselves. They're words that we're not super comfortable with for the most part. And finally, we are God's people. I'm just gonna use that phrase to... um, to say the same thing that Peter is saying when he says a people for his own possession. It just means we're God's people. Okay, let's talk about each of these uh, one by one because they really, really matter. Chosen race. Now, chosen means exactly what you think it means. We were selected. We were picked for this. I love the way last week Lloyd, when he was talking about Abraham, he asked you that trick question. Why did God choose Abraham? And the answer was because he did because God wanted to pick Abraham. There was nothing about Abraham that was super good and righteous that God said, well, there's a great man. Let me choose him. He just picked him. Do you know who else God picked? Do you know who else is chosen? You are. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible describes you that way. You are chosen. Now, race comes from the Greek word genos. We use that word in different contexts. It basically just means a group or or a family who share a common ancestry or a common characteristic. So, you know, we group people all the time. It's like, oh, there's the ethnic group of this, or there's the group of people that that, that vote this way or that way. We're we're, we're accustomed to grouping. What, What Peter is saying is, your primary group is people of the kingdom. Think of it this way, according to the New Testament, your most prominent and important ethnic identity is a member of the people of God, the people of the kingdom. This is more important and and, and more core to your identity than if you're white or, or black or Asian or European or African descent or anything of those kinds of things. I'd say it this way. You are deeply and inextricably connected to the story of the kingdom because you are the people of the kingdom. That's your identity, a chosen race. The second one, a royal priesthood. I I don't know about you. I don't usually use priesthood. You know, I don't think about this concept. You, You could easily translate this, the priests of the kingdom. That's what all that means, the priests of the kingdom. Now think about the purpose of priests. And I'm not talking about, you know, what Lloyd and I do or other pastors on our staff. I'm talking about, think about an Old Testament priest. because this is the reference that Peter is making. A priest was a mediator between God and mankind. The priest would go before God and make the sacrifice on behalf of the people. The go-between. Now, Paul in 1 Timothy says there's only one mediator between God and man, and it's Jesus Christ, the man Jesus Christ. But guess what, guys? We are the body of Jesus Christ. We are the body of Christ. So what Peter is essentially saying here is is think about this and let this blow your mind for just a minute. You are the means by which other people might come to know Jesus, who is the image of God. We are called to be ambassadors, represent- representatives, mediators of grace to point people to the mediator, capital M which points people to God. So this is our first hint that there is a missional purpose for our being made distinct. Just file that away and I'm gonna come back to it. That's royal priesthood. Okay, number three, holy nation. Nation is the Greek word ethnos. It's very similar uh, to genos, but ethnos is a people group. It's a distinctive people group. Holy By the way, people misinterpret or misdefine holy all the time. Most people, when you hear the word holy, you think, oh, that means pure. Well, it's not less than that, but it's more than that. Holy actually technically means set apart for God's use. Set apart, distinct, for a purpose. For God to use it in some way, shape, or form. So a holy people group or a set apart people group is what Peter is saying here. And then finally, a people for his own possession, which, which I've kind of paraphrased, God's people. Look at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Listen, you were not born a follower of Jesus Christ. And and I know, like, sometimes I'll talk to people that want to hear their story. Maybe they're getting baptized or whatever. And they'll say, I've always been a Christian. You know, I was born in a Christian home. And and, and I always like to pause and say, that's incredible that you were born in a Christian home. And I understand what you mean, that there was never a moment in time that you remember not believing in Jesus. But scripture says you are not born redeemed. At some point in time, you put your trust in Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, you came to understand and believe the gospel and you put your trust in Jesus Christ. And at that point in time, what's actually going on theologically, by the way, whether you can remember that specific day or not, what was going on theologically is you were lost and Jesus came and found you. He rescued you. And I want this just to take your breath away for a minute that in the midst of your total lostness, you know, in a sense, you were not looking for God, he was looking for you. He rescued you. He pursued you. He brought you into the family and therefore you are his. You are his possession. And in a sense, think about it this way, you were brought into the inner circle of those who are most intimate with the Father. And scripture literally uses the family of God metaphor. You've been brought into the family. This should create a sense of wonder in us. This should create a sense of gratitude in us. This should create a sense of humility in us. We were chosen to be a holy nation, a set-apart people group. Now, it's important to remember, and I think I've mentioned this, but all four of these descriptors are direct quotations from the Old Testament because Peter is going out of his way to say, listen, church, you're in the story. You're the people of the kingdom. So if I were to summarize what we've learned so far, just from these first two verses and we'll put it on the screen as well. Here's what I'd say. The people of the kingdom are those who are called out from the world to be used by God in it. The group of people throughout history who have been called out from the world in order to be used by God in it. In other words, it's this concept of purposeful distinctiveness. You are set apart Distinct, called out, but not just to be different, to be different for God's use, for God's purpose. Now, we'll leave that on the screen for just a minute, but I wanna track you back through this board, this this, this story. And you can remove that from the screen if you need to, to, to show this, but I want you to think about how this plays out. People being called out in order to be used. Think about Adam and Eve. You might say, well, how were they called out? They were the only humans. Exactly, mankind was called out. The whole creation was made, God saw that it was good. Then he created Adam and Eve. He created man and woman, he said it is very good and he made them distinct. You see, this is why it's important to know that we are distinct from the rest of creation. We were given the responsibility to be the image of God to co-reign and co-rule over all creation. Lloyd covered this last week. We were separated out from the rest of creation. We were called out just to be different, oh no to be used by God. Let's talk about the family of Abraham. Called out. Genesis 12:3, God says, "Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation, but not just so you can be a great nation, so that all the other families of the earth will be blessed through your family." You see, called out from the world in order to be used by God in it. Let's keep going. The nation of Israel, all those laws and rules and regulations that made the Israelites so different, that made them so unique. It's like, don't eat these foods. Yes, eat those foods. Don't intermarry. Be weird, be strange among all these other foreign people groups. Do you see what God was doing? He was calling them out for a purpose. Their purpose was to demonstrate to the world what it looks like for a people to live according to God's hopes, God's desires, God's rule. And of course, they didn't do it great, did they? None of these people did, by the way, which is why we need Jesus. What did Jesus do with his followers? He called them out. He said, Peter, you're a fisherman. I'm calling you out to make you a fisher of men. All of his disciples were hand-picked. Jesus called them out of the world to be distinct from it so he could use them in the world so that the gospel would go out. Same is true with us today, the church. This is what I want you to see. Nothing's changed. The the calling on the people of God has always been to be called out from the world, to be distinct and different for a purpose to be used by God in the world. This is purposeful distinctiveness. If you remember anything from today, I hope you remember that this is our calling. This is our identity. Now, what does it look like for us to live that way? That's the rest of our passage. That's where Peter goes next. So let's look at verses 11 to 12. Beloved, those who are loved, that's the first word. By the way, it's not Peter's beloved, it's beloved of God. All of you who are beloved in the kingdom are beloved by God. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you see the called out from the world in order to be used by God in it? going on in these verses. He's saying, you are to be distinct. You know, you are to abstain from the passions of the flesh because they, they, they war against your soul. You're to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may glorify God on the day of visitation. We're not called to holiness and purity and obedience just so we can like be cleaner and feel better about ourselves. We're called to be distinct for a purpose. I think there are three principles that we can apply pretty directly from these two verses. And and this is where I wanna go next. I wanna give you three principles for how we can live out this purposeful distinctiveness. Principle number one, and we'll put these on the screen, we'll we'll build them as we go. Principle number one, remember who you are. That's what today is all about, guys. Talking about the kingdom last week, today is the people of the kingdom. Remember who you are. This is where Paul starts. with, with, I mean, Peter rather starts, you're a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's people. Then he goes on to say, you're beloved. And then what else does he say? You are sojourners and exiles. I'm thinking, oh man, I I liked all this early stuff, but I don't like that. I don't want to be a sojourner. I don't want to be an exile. And another way you could translate that, by the way, is alien. Which was the theme of the Carrie and Emily show this morning, if you missed it. Alien, who wants to be an exile? Well, what do these words mean? They, they mean resident foreigners. Someone who temporarily is living in one place, although their home is somewhere else. Uh, what Peter is saying is he's saying, remember, this is not your native land. Uh, Eugene Peterson says it, it, it this way. is like, this isn't home for you, so don't get too cozy in it. Uh, that's the idea of what Peter is saying, being a part of the people of the kingdom. Is your primary identity. It's not American, you know, as much as I love this country, it is, it's not my primary identity, American. It's not Southern. You know, I've lived my whole life in the South. I love the South. That's not my primary identity. It's not a Nashville. It's not a political party. And this last one is especially hard for me. It's not even a fan of your favorite sports team. It's not my primary identity. It's not our primary identity. This is not our native land. Remember who you are. That's principle number one. Principle number two engage with purposeful distinctiveness. Well, how do you do that? What does that actually look like? Well, because we represent a different kingdom, we represent an an alternative kingdom on this earth. We're called to live differently, We're, we're called to have different priorities and different values and a different mindset. We're called to make different choices. This is, I, I love what, what Peter says here, and I just want to reread it. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, that doesn't sound like very much fun to abstain from the passions of the flesh. You know, I don't know about you, but then what Peter's doing is he's, he's pulling the veil off of what that is. He says, which wage war against your soul. And then you know, he goes on and says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. By the way, he's using the word Gentiles now, not just to reference non-Jews. He's using the word Gentiles, mean the people that are not yet in the kingdom, you know, the outsiders in, in that kind of kind of way. How are we to view outsiders? Not in judgment, not in hatred, but, but but as an opportunity to declare the goodness of God, and check it out at the end of the verse, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's a reference to the second coming of Jesus. In other words, our purpose as the people of the kingdom is to embody the kingdom in contrast to the kingdom of death and decay around us. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of life and flourishing, and we're called to embody those things in a kingdom of decay and death that is all around us. This is why I love what Lloyd did last week. He drew this. I'm gonna redraw and explain it, that right now we are in this now and not yet, that heaven and earth kind of overlap in the person of Jesus and this is what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand because the king had arrived. And guess what? He's still alive. He dwells in us through the spirit. So what does that mean? We live in this space, guys. Are, are we yet in, in the very presence of God like we will be for all eternity? No. But are, are we just like normal people on the earth? No. We have God inside of us. We live in this overlap of God's space and human space, the overlap between heaven and earth. And what we're called to is to make little glimpses of this overlap, which is the kingdom of God, show up in the world around us. This is exactly what Jesus did through all his miracles. That's what Jesus was doing. He said, okay, you know what it's gonna look like to live in a place where God is fully on the throne? There'll be no more disease. Let me show you what that's like. There'll be no more hunger. Let me show you what that's like. There'll be no more storms. Let me show you what that's like. And so we are called on the same lines to represent the overlap between heaven and earth to make God's space show up in human space, little glimpses, to, 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 to help the earth see what it will be like when Jesus is on the throne. This is why we're called not just to preach the gospel, which is foremost what's on our mind, but also to embody the kingdom of God through acts and love and and serving. And we're called to the poor and we're called to the marginalized and we're called to make God's kingdom show up in little glimpses on this earth. Jesus used an analogy in his sermon on the Mount, very similar to this when he said, you are the salt of the earth. Remember that? We covered this, I don't know, four or five weeks ago. Uh, We'll put it on the screen. Matthew 5.13, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Purposeful distinctiveness. What's noteworthy about salt only its saltiness. Salt matters because it's distinct. Salt, when it loses its distinctiveness, and by the way, chemically, this isn't even possible, but Jesus is using this as an example, then the salt just becomes dirt in essence. What good is it? You just throw it out if it loses its distinctiveness. Listen, we are the people of the kingdom in our day and place. There's no other people of the kingdom in our day and place. It's us. It's us. It's the church. It seems to me that we've largely lost our saltiness, our distinctiveness. What what do I mean by that? Well, I believe we may be failing to offer much of an alternative community to the community around us, much of an alternative kingdom to the kingdom of decay and death around us. I'm concerned that we've become maybe so influenced by the cultural struggles around us that we're actually no longer distinct from them? So think about it this way. Our culture right now is defined by a a dualism that's, I think, gotten pretty toxic. You know, everybody's got a label. And you're either this or you're that. And if you're not that, then you're definitely this. And if you're not this, then I don't think we can get along because you're that and I'm this. In our culture at this moment, you're either pro this or you're anti that. You're either liberal or conservative. You're either progressive or you're traditional. You're either for social justice or you're for individual freedoms. You're either a mask wearer or a mask hater and on and on and on and on and on. And and, and here's what I'm trying to say with all this. As citizens of an alternative kingdom, we must somehow be distinct from the patterns of the world. And I think what that means is we... And this is hard, I know, and it's not clear exactly what this means to live it out. We'll talk about that a little bit. But I think it means we can't be just this or that. We can't be that easy to categorize. We must offer a third way the way of Jesus Christ. Now, our way, our path, is the path of a kingdom. This is why we've been talking, preaching through the sermon these months. This is why we're doing this little mini series on the kingdom of God right now, because we must engage with purposeful distinctiveness. Principle number three, last one, rest in God's plan. Uh, Peter does really is something brilliant at the very end of verse 12. He, he says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is a reminder that the story is not over that God has got this, that Jesus is gonna come. He's gonna return. There's gonna be another visitation. There's gonna be another advent, by the way. Advent just means arrival. We talk about, we're about to celebrate the advent season. There's gonna be another advent. There's gonna be another arrival. Jesus is coming to make everything new and establish the kingdom of God in all its fullness. And this is where Lloyd's gonna go next week, all right? So I won't steal his thunder, but guess what? Jesus is going to make it right. He's going to bring it all back together. And and guess what we're going to experience at the end of time and through all eternity? Guess what it's going to be? Just say it with me. God's, you you can do this. People, what's the next one? God's place under God's rule, enjoying God's, there you go. You see how this is all going to come together? That's how it's all going to come together together. And, and so when, when I say, you know, what, what we put on the screen a minute ago, this third principle resting in God's plan, that, that, that's where it's going. Now, I told you earlier, we're going to talk about the election. And, you know, yes, I, I dare, I dare <laughs> to talk about the election. Um, I want to use this as an application because I know it's on everybody's mind. It's, it's going to be a heavy week, no matter what happens. It's going to be a heavy week. And, and so I want to share what God's put on my heart. How do we live as a people of the kingdom and a citizen of our nation? Because we are called to both. Now clearly this is our priority, no question in scripture. But, but it's the same true in Jesus' day. Right? They were called to be a people of the kingdom of God at the same time, they were under the, the rule of a government and they had to live, live that out. And so you remember the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus. They, they brought to him a, a Roman coin, you know, and they're asking, is it, is, it, is it fair to pay taxes? What does Jesus say? Give to Caesar, what does Caesar's give to God? The things that are his. In our context, what is Caesar's? You know, what is the government? Well, among other things, our responsibility to engage well in the political system, to vote and to have influence, that's absolutely ours. What belongs to God? everything so we've got to fit this our you know our civic responsibility within the broader context of what belongs to God which is our heart and our soul and our everything our dreams our desires our energy etc so what I want to do is I want to walk back through these three principles as it relates to voting now I know a lot of you have already voted let me see your hand if you've already voted Okay, that looks like everybody, but no, it's not. I have not yet voted. Okay, I kind of like doing it on Tuesday. I may regret it. Yeah. Just check in with me about like 7 p.m. on Tuesday, and we'll see if I regret it. But I want you to apply this to voting. And if you've already voted, you can apply this to the, the aftermath of, of this week, of, of what was going to happen, whatever that may be. Remember who you are. When you walk into that polling place, if you haven't voted, or when you engage in conversations about the election, which of us will this week. We will all have conversations online or in person. When you do those things, you are representing the kingdom of God. You don't even have a choice in that. It comes with your calling, it comes with you being chosen. You you are called to this, in, in a sense. People pay attention to how Christians engage in political issues in our nation maybe right now more than ever. They just do. And so I was thinking about verse 12 from our text. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Apply that to this week. It's like, you know, you might have a conversation with somebody and they're gonna think you are just out of your mind. How could you possibly vote for so-and-so? And as you engage in that, keep your conduct honorable. So even, they might, even though they might accuse you as evil, you know, you're evil because of who you associate with or whatever, that they may see your good deeds, your gentleness, your love, your respect for them, even in opposition, and glorify God on the day of his visitation. You see that? Re- remembering who you are is a mindset that will shape your speech this week and will shape your actions this week. That's number one. Number two, engage with purposeful distinctiveness when you remember that your highest citizenship is the kingdom of God, that, that, that your, your highest allegiance is the kingdom of God, you'll find that there will never be a political party or a candidate who is running on that platform. It's not their job to. It's our job to embody and represent the kingdom of God. That's our job. it's, it's, it's Listen, I've been thinking about this a lot and some of you may disagree with this and that's okay. I love you. But I believe this is true. Christians with identical theology and love for Jesus will come to different conclusions about who should get their vote. I believe this is true. Um, Here's what I want to encourage you to do in light of that. I want to encourage you to give at least as much weight as you do who to vote for, give at least as much weight to the reasons you vote for that candidate, and then the manner in which you engage the conversations around it. I've got two really great examples, like from the last two days, about that's given me hope for this. Uh, the first was an article that I saw this morning as I was scanning through my phone and this article popped up, has just been published today online, and I want to encourage you to read it, because I think it's really good. We've got a screenshot of it. Why Evangelicals Disagree on the President, the Reason We're Divided, and How We Can Come Together, uh, by Timothy Dalrymple. Now, here's who Timothy Dalrymple is, just in, in case you don't know. He is the President and CEO of Christianity Today depending on how you feel, Christianity today has come under attack for some things. And what I was so encouraged when I read this article. I want to encourage you to read it. What he does on this is not try to convince anybody either way. He's just saying, I've thought about why Christians with the same theology and the same love for Jesus feel so strongly different about who to vote for for president. And he explains why he thinks that is. And guys, I'm telling you, it rings true to me. So I want to encourage you to read this article. He does it with grace. He does, is helpful, I think it's coming from a place of love, and he's not trying to make a big argument. So I encourage you to check that out, great example. Second example, sometime in the last week, John Piper wrote an article about, about how he's approaching this election. And I won't tell you what Piper's view is. It, it's immaterial right now. But he came out pretty clearly. Here, here's how I'm gonna handle this dilemma of, of vote. Now, John Piper, if you don't know who he is, Pastor, writer, theologian, author, big influence on my life. I just have a ton of respect for John Piper. He is so solid, biblically. Then yesterday, my my sister Tara sent me an email link to another one of my theological heroes, Wayne Grudem who wrote The Systematic Theology. Like some of you have read this book. It's on my shelf. You know, I've read a good chunk of it. Grudem is so solid biblically too. And he's responding to his friend, John Piper. And Grudem is sharing all the reasons why he disagrees with John Piper. But he does it with grace. And I want to read to you at the very end of Wayne Grudem's article, the very end of what he says here is so good. He adds a P.S., After I finished writing this article, I sent it to John. He's talking about John Piper. For any comments, he replied that I had represented him fairly and he assured me that he counted me as a dear friend. He also pointed out how I could have made one of my arguments stronger. (laughs) Now listen to this. I think that only someone with a strong confidence in the sovereignty of God over all history would do that in the midst of a serious disagreement about the future of our nation. So oh, good. I, I, I'm so hopeful when I read that. Finally, rest in God's plan. Rest in God's plan. So we have remember who you are, engage with purposeful distinctiveness, rest in God's plan. Uh, th- this election has been accompanied by more fear and concern on both sides of the aisle than any I can remember. And, and, and in my own heart too. And I know in many of your hearts, because we've talked. I want to remind us of Romans 13, verse one. Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. This week, no matter what happens, remember who's in charge. He's not sleeping at the wheel He hasn't forgotten about us. He's not grown tired of us. He's not changed his mind about where this is all heading and what he's going to do. His plan is right on schedule. This election is likely not the end of the world as we know it. But even if it is, (laughs) praise God for that because this world's not our home. If if it is the end of the world as we know it in some way, shape, or form, it means that that there's another thing that has happened that's brought us closer to God's kingdom being established on this earth under the perfect reign and rule of King Jesus Christ. I am so hopeful about that. I'd like us to end this message by praying together. And, and so I wanna lead us in this, I'll guide us. Um, I want us all to stand as a united front of the people of God in our day and time with disagreements in our minds and hearts of who we may be voting for. We are united under the banner of Jesus Christ. And here's what we're gonna pray for together and, and, and I'll walk us through the prayer. We're gonna pray for the church, not just our church, but the church, the followers of Jesus Christ worldwide. We're gonna pray for our nation, specifically this election on Tuesday, and we're gonna pray for God's kingdom to come. That's what we're gonna pray. So bow your heads and let's pray together. Our Father, we stand here united in, in, in the room and, and those that are watching online in our area, maybe scattered around the country or maybe scattered around the world who may be watching this right now, and, and we, we stand together united through common faith in a common Lord part of a common story, recognizing a common identity. And Father, we pray that we would represent your kingdom well on this earth, that, that, that our moment in time, as this baton has been handed to us in this grand story, that we would run our part well Father, may we be united in love and obedience to our King. May we be serious about the mission that you've given to us. May we be purposefully distinct from the world around us so that they may see glimpses of something more glorious and more transcendent. May we be known by love and grace and wisdom and all the things that characterize the life of Jesus Christ. Father, secondly, we pray for our nation in this moment in time a nation that's struggling under the weight of an ongoing pandemic and questions about the future and disagreements and racial tensions and all these things that we have experienced in this year that have been going on long even before 2020 arrived. And here we've come to a significant day on Tuesday and Father, we pray for this election. We pray that you would put the leaders in place whom you would use to establish your plan. We pray, Father, that you would grant calm in the hearts of those who will be disappointed and afraid at the results. And Father, we pray that you would allow all of our elected officials at the local level, the state, the national level, would you allow them through grace to lead with exemplary character and wisdom and justice. And finally, Father, we pray for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for the coming of the day that Zechariah saw when the Lord will be king over the whole earth and on that day there will be one Lord and his name the only name. We pray for the fulfillment of Micah's words for the day when we shall beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks when nation will no longer lift up sword against nation nor even train for war any longer. And we pray for the day prophesied by Isaiah when the increase of the government of Jesus Christ would have no end, that he would establish his kingdom and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this day forth forevermore. Father, may the power and wisdom and grace and love that is yours accomplish this in the name of our King, King Jesus. Amen.